Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. Welcome to The Less Stressed Life, all about making this your time to feel freaking awesome about your life, health, and happiness. This podcast of The Less Stressed Life is hosted by Krista Bigler. Krista is an integrative registered dietitian nutritionist who specializes in reducing food-related stress, inflammation, and symptoms of food sensitivities. She brings over a decade of nutrition expertise and playing with her food to the table. From coaching, teaching, writing, and work Working within a major food company to behind the scenes for a health celebrity. To learn more, visit lessstresslife.com. there. I just wanted to share today's kitchen ninja tip. Now it's not a real kitchen ninja tip as much as a nutrition tip related to eczema. So our expert today talks a bit about eczema and kiddos scratching in their sleep because I've been doing a lot of eczema work with kiddos lately. I just wanted to share a couple pieces. So there's a lot of things going on with eczema, like a lot, a lot, but If we're just talking food wise, some of the biggest irritants for eczema are dairy, wheat, and eggs. Okay, but largely when you go back to reintroduce eggs, egg yolks will be better than egg whites. So I hope that's helpful to you and back to the show. Okay, so today on The Less Stress Life, we have Tara Hess. Tara is a certified gentle sleep coach and happiest baby on the block educator. She helps families with children from six months to six years old get their children to sleep through the night. She's the owner of Tulsa Pediatric Sleep Consulting and sees clients all over the world. Thank you so much for joining us today, Tara. Yeah, thanks for having me, Krista. Yeah, so I, it's, you know, there's no cool story, backstory on how I met Tara. I actually just went to Google and her website pops up first and it looks great. And so I kind of reached out, I kind of stalked her for a while and, um, and, and then finally reached out to her and said, Hey, would you be on the podcast? And why did I do that? Because I kept noticing people that were listening to the podcast or clients, they, a lot of them would complain or kind of back when I was doing more general health coaching, I just noticed it was a big common denominator of, you know, people not getting sleep or even people complaining about their older children, not sleeping well. And it just taxes people so much because sleep is number one for rest and recovery. And we just can't function Mm -hmm. without it. So just kind of wanted to bring, um, one of, I mean, there's so many pieces to talk about with sleep for sure, but I thought Mm -hmm. we would talk a little bit and bring you guys some value about helping kids sleep through the night. So I'm excited for Tara to share some of her pearls with us today. 
So Tara, will you tell us how and why you started sleep coaching? Like, how did you know this was a thing? Okay. Well, I actually didn't know it was a thing before I had kids. Um, you know, you just always see all the babies on the go, just asleep in their car seat or their stroller. And, and you are planning to have a baby and you just think your baby's going to do that too. Um, but my oldest daughter was born and proved me wrong. Um, she's now 10. So this was 10 years ago um, when sleep coaching really wasn't very popular back then. It was kind of like an up and coming thing. Um, she was a horrible sleeper. I mean, just never would sleep anywhere. She just was very colicky, a very high needs baby. And they're all born, of course, with their own little temperaments. But um, I was miserable. I was so exhausted and so frustrated and thought, what am I doing wrong? And why is my baby not sleeping? And so I started following um, a lady, Kim West is her name. She's known as the sleep lady. Um, she has a book called good night, sleep tight. And, um, I, I had read her book and I started following her blog and stuff. And, and, um, she, we ended up working together. Um, I actually did use her as my personal sleep coach, um, before, you know, before I became one, obviously. And she just really got me in a great place. I mean, for me, it was almost like a life-changing experience, like to go from being so exhausted every single day to, you know, a couple weeks later, your baby going to sleep without crying and sleeping through the night. And I just did not think it was possible for me, but it obviously was. And so I just kind of followed Kim West. Um, like I said, her blog and everything after that. And she offered the opportunity to train about 50 women across the world um, to do what she does. And I kind of jumped on that. And um, that was about seven years ago. So I've been doing this for about seven years now. And did you say what did you do before you became a sleep coach? I was actually a teacher. So my background is in education and I taught for about five years before I had my own kids. Um, so I taught everything from second to fifth grade and I love that. Um, but you know, once I had my own kids, I was glad to have the opportunity to find something to do where I could kind of make my own schedule and work around their schedules and all that kind of stuff. I have three kids now at this point, by the way. Yeah. How old are they? So 10, 10 is my oldest, like I said, and then I also have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old, and it definitely goes fast. <laughs> yeah, so you've been a sleep coach for seven years, so you had these tools in place kind of before your next couple kids came along. Did you find that that was really useful? Oh, of course I did. Now, I will say that my middle child and my youngest child had much different temperaments than my oldest child, um, much more easygoing temperaments. And so it was probably a combination of the fact that I kind of knew what I was doing as well, but, but also that their temperaments just made it a lot easier. And I always am trying to make sure other parents realize that, that sometimes, you know, we're given a baby with a temperament that we didn't exactly want. <laughs> um, sometimes we have to kind of grieve about that, but, um, but sometimes that is the reason why they're not sleeping well. You know, we can't change that. I mean, they're all born with their little temperaments and we can't change that. So, but anyways, yes, I did find it was helpful for me, but also their temperament had a lot to do with it too. Oh, fun. Uh, 
there was something, oh, I, I read an article once or I read a study once about how women that eat chocolate when pregnant have happier babies. And I'm quite convinced that that's why my third child, my first child are so much better tempered than my, than my second. I just wasn't eating enough chocolate during pregnancy. Probably. <laughs> yeah, that must be it. Yeah, probably. Uh, so do you use a variety of methods then as a sleep coach? It's all types of things that you just customize to people. Yeah, well, every plan that I create for each family that comes to me is definitely customized. It's very different. I mean, we are working with little human beings. And like I said, their temperaments are different. Their age is different. Their habits are different. Um, That is something that might be, you know, different from me compared to other sleep consultants is I do actually let my clients choose their own method. So my emphasis, of course, my title is gentle sleep coach. So my emphasis was definitely on more of those, you know, the gentle approaches. But um, I, I think it is important to let the family choose the approach that they feel the most comfortable with. Um, so what I do during a consultation is I overview what their options would be for, you know, again, for their particular child and their age and everything. And, um, and then I let them choose the one that they're the most comfortable with. And we discuss how to do that in detail. If they're not comfortable with the plan or the method that, that we discuss, they're just not going to do it. They're not going to follow through consistently and then they won't be successful. So, you know, it's very important to me that they're successful. So I think allowing them to choose their method is key. Yeah, I I know what you mean. Uh, You kind of thrive on results. So you want to make sure that everyone's on the same page. I can completely see the correlation in my type of line of work as well. So tell us, tell us about kind of maybe no client is typical, but how do you know when someone really needs a sleep coach? Do people kind of come to you with, are there current, are there common patterns that you see when Um, you know, yeah, I need to help this family or, or something like that. I don't know that I've ever had a family come to me that I was like, I can't help you. I'm sorry. I I really don't know that that has ever happened. If you have a child between the ages of six months to six years and, and they are not sleeping through the night consistently, I, I can help you. Like there's something that I can definitely help you with. Um, success with sleep training is definitely in the details. And like you said earlier, there are a lot of details to know about kids sleep. And I find that sometimes parents feel like they should know what to do by themselves. And so they don't reach out for help. Um, you know, and then finally, it's just like, they're so frustrated. They, they eventually do. And, and I always get the comment, why didn't I do this sooner? For some reason, they feel like it's something that they should know how to do by themselves. But, you know, I've, I've had hundreds of hours of training in pediatric sleep. I've worked with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of clients. I mean, I do this every day. So obviously, you know, I'm going to have a little bit more information than a parent with just their one child is going to know. Um, so I totally, I can just relate on so many, on so many ways. I, I will give you a funny one. So everyone kind of like gets frustrated when things aren't going. So I'm a integrative, you know, dietitian. So I help people kind of get to the root cause of what's going on. And that's what you're doing with sleep. And so this is just a funny uh, correlation when people get frustrated because they're not eating maybe the right things that are perfect for their body, but they're frustrated because everyone eats. So everyone should know how to do it. And so it's probably the same. Everyone sleeps. So everyone should feel like they know what they should be doing, but there's details, lots of details. 
Right. And sleep is actually a learned skill. It's, it's actually not something that babies are born necessarily knowing how to do. Now, of course, in the early months, they're, you know, they're so sleepy and they're brand new and the parents do a lot of what they were doing when the baby was in the womb, walking around and holding them a lot and carrying them and that kind of stuff. And so they continue to sleep. But but it is a learned skill. And some babies will learn that easier than others because of their temperament, like I said. Um, some you really have to work at teaching that to them. But it's, you know, it is something they have to learn eventually. It's a lifelong skill they're going to need to know. Interesting. Yeah. So you told me you have um, some points for our audience. So five things that keep your child from sleeping well at night. Is that correct? Yeah. So go ahead if you want, if you want to go through those and, and share those with us now, that'd be great. We'd love it. Okay. Okay. So the five most common reasons why children don't sleep through the night, these are really in no particular order, but I'll just kind of briefly overview what they are. Um, one of the things I see commonly with the clients that come to me is that their child has too late of a bedtime. Not always, of course, but, but quite frequently I see this. So basically for kids under the age of 10, they're going to need at least 10 to 11 hours, sometimes 12 hours of uninterrupted sleep, you know, every single night. Um, so sometimes parents just don't realize how much sleep their child actually needs. And, and the only way to get that much sleep is to go to bed early enough to, to get that. Um, you know, the earlier they go to bed, often the later they will sleep in the morning. And, um, a lot of parents are worried about doing an earlier bedtime because they think if I put my, you know, child to bed earlier, they're going to wake up earlier in the morning. But for kids, it just it's just not true. Um, the earlier they go to bed gives them a chance to not be overtired before they go to bed. And then they actually sleep better and, and can sleep later in the morning. So too late of a bedtime, definitely a common one. Um, another common reason why children might not sleep through the night is from nap deprivation. So, you know, if they have the combination of too late of a bedtime and they're deprived of naps, um, you can almost guarantee they're going to wake up during the night. So if they skip their nap completely or their naps are really short, um, that can create more night wakings. And, and it, ha it gives them like poor quality sleep, even when they are sleeping. Um, so again, it's not always logical, but it's true. So a lot of parents think, um, you know, if I hear the common myth, oh, just don't, don't let him nap, keep him up from naps and then he'll sleep better tonight. And it just absolutely isn't true. Sleep begets sleep. Uh, the better they sleep during the day, the better they're going to sleep at night and vice versa. Now, obviously the naps have to be, you know, at the right timing of the day. They can't be too late into the day and, and that kind of stuff. But, um, but we definitely need the right amount of daytime sleep. And I would say any child under the age of three absolutely still needs to be getting at least one, you know, good nap every single day. Um, three at the age of three is when they kind of start, you know, somewhere in that third year, often they'll start to phase out the naps. Most children by the age of four are no longer napping. And again, every kid's a little different. So it's not that there aren't some four-year-olds who might still need a nap, but usually if they're getting the right amount of nighttime sleep, 
Um, you know, overall at that age, they won't need the nap around that time. So anyway, second, the second thing was nap deprivation. Um, the third most common reason, and, and really out of, out of all of them, this is probably the biggest issue I see with, with my clients and is, I would say true of almost every single family who comes to me is that their child is put to bed already asleep. Um, so if their parents are doing something like rocking them to sleep or nursing them to sleep or walking them around until they go to sleep or giving them a bottle or lying down with them or bouncing them on the ball, I mean, I have seen like everything under the sun, you know, but these are all what we call sleep crutches or sleep props. It's basically um, doing all the work for your child to put them to sleep at bedtime and then expecting them to know how to go back to sleep if they wake up during the night. No, they, they won't. You know, when they wake up at night, they're going to expect you to do all the same things that you did at bedtime because that's how they've been taught, again, how to go to sleep. Um, so, so going to bed awake really is almost the very first thing that I have to work with parents on teaching their children, you know, every single family that comes to me. Um, so that's, that's the third. And then another common reason why, why children don't sleep during the night is if their parents are responding inconsistently when they do wake up during the night. So if one time they wake up and the parent is trying to plug their pacifier in and the next time you're trying to rock them and the next time you're nursing them and the next time you're laying down with them, I mean, you know, every time they wake up, you're responding differently. That kind of inconsistency can actually create more wakings, basically just because your your child doesn't know what's going to happen when they wake up. That can lead to more crying and, and more wakings, like I said. So responding in a consistent manner is, is important um, to get your child sleeping through the night. And then the last thing that would cause a child to sleep through the night would be underlying medical conditions. So, you know, I, I see this, I don't know, maybe in about five to 10% of, of the kids that I work with. If we're talking about reflux, I guess that number would be a lot higher. That's a pretty common one in the first year. But, but commonly I'll see things like allergies or asthma or eczema or sometimes sleep apnea even is actually more common than parents realize. Um, so one thing that I do when parents come to me, um, the first thing I do is have them fill out a pretty detailed intake form. Um, it's an electronic form, so I just email that to them, and they type right on it and save it and send it back to me. And that allows me to look at all the details of exactly why that particular child is not sleeping well. Um, and the first section of the form is the health and medical history. And so there are questions about allergies and eczema and asthma and reflux and sleep apnea. And sometimes parents don't know why I'm asking particular questions, of course. It's like, does your child do this, this, this? Does it have this? You know, Do they have this symptom or whatever? And they may have no idea why I'm asking that question, but it's exactly Exactly what I'm trying to do is rule out um, the possibility of any kind of underlying medical condition, because if that is part of the problem, um, we just are not going to make any progress or not at least not be fully successful with trying to change things behaviorally, um, you know, until we get those things under control. So, so underlying medical conditions would be uh, one of the other five reasons why, why children don't sleep at night. 
That was a really interesting list. So the first one was too late a bedtime, and I have a question about that because and it goes along with number yeah. two. So you talked about nap deprivation, which is funny. Like that is, I love that. I think that's going to be kind of an aha moment for a lot of people. I'll, you know, sometimes my husband will say, "Oh, don't Max will our youngest will need to stay up later because he took a late nap or whatever," and so it can kind of just interfere with all those things. But I was curious about signs of overtired. Because it seems like my kids just get like wound up like an Energizer bunny and it's like exhausting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's really common. Um, and that's sometimes when parents that, you know, we call it the second wind usually. And sometimes parents will assume that their child is not tired because they start to have all that energy again. But actually what's happening is that you maybe didn't get them to sleep um, when they were really tired, like more in their natural sleep window. Um, and so now they're getting overtired. And and what happens is their bodies release a lot of cortisol. Cortisol is our, is our stress hormone. Um, when they get that cortisol in the bloodstream, they, you know, they do get a, a surge of energy. Um, but, but that's what's going on is that they're actually overtired. So sometimes looking for um, them to be acting hyperactive is, is a sign of being overtired for sure. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. I would definitely say that's true in our house. And I, I bet when other people heard your list, they were kind of nodding like, oh, Yep. Been there. Understand. Um, and I, I can resonate with that. Number three, I, I think that's most common when people tell me they've they have issues is, you know, it's so fun to rock baby to sleep and then they just keep getting bigger. And then all of a sudden you're kind of ready to detach. Um, and that kind of, that kind of brings me into some of, I asked some of some people on Facebook and in a group kind of what their questions were for a sleep specialist, sleep coach. And they had a few questions and one of them was kind of related to that. So, um, and so one was transitioning babies, sharing, sharing a, a bed, sharing baby to a crib. You know, when should those kids be sleeping alone? Um, and I, and I'm guessing that it's this number three is kind of part of the issue there. Oh, putting, putting them to bed already asleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cause that's exactly why the parents are often laying down with them. Now for some families, um, they have sought out to co-sleep. I mean, that might've even been their goal before they even had kids. And I'm always like, Hey, as long as, you know, everyone's getting good sleep, each, each family obviously gets to do what works for them. But most of the families who come to me, of course, have found themselves co-sleeping when they didn't originally intend to, they just felt like they, you know, couldn't get their child to sleep in any other way. Um, so were you asking like how to get them to a crib or? Well, even when should they be transitioned? Because I see, it seems, yeah, it seems that there's some, um, different age categories and that's where, where parents were kind of curious about is when should this be happening kind of. And, and one, number one, uh, it sounds like, it sounds like they have to be awake when you put them to sleep (laughs) is one strategy for that. They do, but this is, um, there's a big 
shift developmentally between babies under six months old and babies over six months old. So I actually provide two different services, two very different services. My consultation for under six months old is called the Baby Basics. And it's more of a general sleep education type of consultation um, with, you know, again, sleep expectations, you know, tips for maximizing sleep, safe sleep, all that kind of stuff. It is not a full sleep training plan. I don't provide those for, for babies until they're at least six months old. And that's because around the age of six months is when sleep is fully developed and organized in the brain. So sometimes under, under the six-month mark, I'm like, hey, we all just kind of have to do whatever we have to do to survive and get by and get as much sleep as possible, you know, in the safest way possible, of course. Um, the American Academy of Pediatrics, their most current guideline is to room share, not to bed share, but to room share. So to have your baby in the room with you, maybe in a bassinet or a pack and play or something, um, for at least the six month, the first six months, it does say ideally up to the first year. Um, of course there's other studies who say different things. Like if you keep them in there that long for a whole year, then it's really hard to transition them out because they're so aware of their surroundings and environment and, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, I like to recommend room sharing for at least six months, but I do think after that is, is kind of a good time to start transitioning them to their own room. Um, you know, before, like, like I said, before they get really stimulated by their environment and everything. Interesting. So another person had a question, how long do you try a sleep technique to know before you know if it's going to work or if you should move on to something else? Well, you know, that is a little bit hard to give a very specific answer because it depends on, um, like if this is one of my clients and I've given them the plan, then I could tell you exactly how long to try. If it's a parent who's just trying something, then obviously what they're trying honestly just might not be the right thing to try. Um, you know, it takes all kinds of details of the day to be aligned, not just, you know, what you're trying at bedtime, but really what's happened the whole day. I mean, sometimes what they're eating, I mean, if they're getting any kind of like caffeine or something later in the day, um, you know, making sure the time Timing of their naps is at the right time. Um, having an appropriate bedtime routine. I mean, there's all kinds of factors that play into how well a child's going to sleep, not just what you're doing, you know, with the technique that you're trying. Um, it also depends on the method because some of the methods are much quicker than than other methods, you know. So if if I had a family trying like an extinction method, you know, and it really you weren't done in like three or four days, something things wrong. Like that you should not be having your child like completely cry it out for longer than that. Something, something is off. Um, generally, um, I say, you know, with the other methods, they should be seeing some major progress within about five to seven nights. That doesn't always mean every baby's going to be sleeping through the night or every child's going to be staying in bed within five to seven nights, but they should at least be feeling like they are seeing some major progress within about five to seven nights. And if not, sometimes it's not necessarily about switching methods, but just tweaking the details involved in that method. So again, I know that kind of may not make a lot of sense to a lot of people, um, but it, okay. Well, it just kind of depends on, on the method then. Yeah, for sure. It makes perfect sense. 
and I should mention that I believe every Sunday you do actually answer questions live, kind of on a thread. Is that right? On your Facebook page, Tulsa Pediatric Sleep Consulting? Yeah. So on my Facebook page, um, every Sunday evening at 8 p.m. Central, so from 8 to 9 p.m., I will post a thread that just says, you know, this is the the Sunday Sleep Solutions thread. Post your questions in the comments. And um, I get lots and lots of comments. Usually, I'm unfortunately not able to answer all the questions in that hour because I do stop at 9 o'clock or I'm sure I'd be going all night. But um But yeah, even if parents don't have questions, sometimes it's great to get on there. And often you have a similar question to someone else and can learn from them too. So cool. Yeah, no, these are helpful. So I have a couple more from them if you don't mind. Um, So some parents were wondering about your thoughts on sleepwalking or bad dreams or night terrors. Like why are children having night terrors? Yeah, so night terrors um, are kind of like being stuck between wakefulness and and sleep. Um, They're very common, actually. They're not like a bad thing. It doesn't mean, you know, I've had parents contact me. They think that something's like psychologically wrong with their child or something. Um, But again, they're they're, they're very common, especially between the ages of like 2 to 12. Um, So now nightmares or bad dreams are very different from night terrors. But um, the night terrors and the sleepwalking and those kinds of things can sleep talking. Those can kind of go along in the same category. Nightmares, of course, are scary dreams that wake up children. And and often if they have a nightmare, they're not going to really want to go back to sleep. Um, You know, so you want to avoid doing things like letting them see scary shows and um, playing scary games or anything like that and really respond to them if they have a bad dream or a nightmare and assure them of their safety. Um, You know, things like that. I mean, there's lots of little things you can be doing for for nightmares or bad dreams. It's definitely a time where you want to respond. Whereas with night terrors, um, although they can seem terrifying, I mean, you know, a child might kick, they might cry, they might scream, they might be completely inconsolable. But usually... If, the, if it's a true night terror, they're not really awake and they won't even remember that it happened the next day. Um, if you go in the room, for instance, during a night terror, your child might not even know that you're there. He might not even recognize you, um, you know, but but if it's a true night terror, you actually don't want to respond. So, again, the response is different from a nightmare um, because if you do respond, if you if you're touching your child, or you're talking to your child or something during the episode, it can actually make it last longer. And then sometimes it will wake your child up. And then that's what scares them is like, why are you waking me up in the middle of the night? And, you know, things like that. So so if your child isn't remembering that it's happening the next day, then that would be a night terror. Um, so again, you want to respond really differently. Now, um, sleep deprivation can can absolutely make night terrors worse. So making sure your child's getting enough sleep can help um, try to you know keep them from happening. Making sure bedtime's at a regular time, early time, and and all of that kind of stuff. Getting the naps in if they need it. Your child would have a less likely chance of having the night terrors if you're doing those things. Interesting. So do you put bed? So I I have opinions about nutritional implications um, about bedwetting, but do you have any opinions about bedwetting and when you see that and when it's a concern that you either deal with or refer out? 
Sure, absolutely. Um, so bedwetting is a lot more common than parents sometimes realize, but they don't see it as a problem. They being like um, medical professionals do not see it as a, as a medical problem until a child is six years old. So um, you can't really potty train them at night, if that makes sense. Um, so, you know, under under the age of six years, I mean, it's, it's very common for kids to not be able to stay dry at night or to need to wake up multiple times to go, go to the bathroom. Um, it's more common in males, but absolutely can happen in girls um, just because their their bladders are so small and they're immature and and all of that kind of stuff. So um, if, um, you know, if they're under six years old, then again, it wouldn't be considered a problem. But if they're six years and older, that would be time to take some action. Um, I actually have a great referral. I don't know if you want me to mention <laughs> who that is, but um, there is an occupational therapist who really helps a lot with bedwetting issues. Um, so her name is Kara Blosh, B-L-O-S-C-H-E. I actually just posted her information not long ago on my Facebook page. Um, but her business is called Sweet Dreams Therapy. She does not have like a Facebook page or anything. Um, she's also local to the Tulsa area, but she will travel to some other areas too. I know she definitely goes to like the Dallas area. Um, so maybe some of the local states, but um, Sweet Dreams Therapy Therapy and she provides bedwetting treatment. Um, again, she's an occupational therapist. The kids do have to be at least six years old and be having, you know, common bedwetting issues. It's commonly, you know, related to just really deep, heavy sleeping. And, and if one parent maybe had bedwetting issues, then it is hereditary or it can be. So that can you know, go along with that too. But a lot of parents contact me, of course, I work with kids, you know, through the age of six. So most of my kids are younger, and they feel like there's a problem. And, you know, I always have to tell them, you know, they're not going to see this as a problem until they get older. Most of the time, they will just phase that out as they get a little bit older. Their little bladders are just sometimes small and immature. And until they get a little bigger, sometimes they can't handle, you know, any, any volume of fluid in there during the night. And that's why they either wet their pull up or wet the bed or need to get up and, and go to the bathroom. And again, that would be seen as very normal until, until they get to the age of six. And at that point you want to try to take some action. Okay. Well, there's a lot of parents that are going, whew. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so speaking of slightly older toddlers, uh, mm -hmm. I had some questions about older children that won't sleep through the night if they're two or three years old. Is that a cause of concern? Um, definitely not a cause of concern. Um, so again, I, I'm certified to work with kids all the, all through the age of six, all the way through the age of six. Um, you know, and I have had just as many two or three year olds, to be honest, as I've probably had babies. Um, it's a very common. Sometimes they're kids who maybe used to sleep good, but maybe they had an illness one time or their family traveled or something and they regressed for one reason or another and then just never went back. You know, the parents usually will uh, form some habits during that regression. And then, you know, you, I mean, you're 
your child's going to continue to wake up until those habits are broken. Sometimes they're kids who've never slept through the night. I remember one of my very first clients seven years ago was a six-year-old who had literally never once slept through the night his whole life. Um, so, you know, I thought I was pretty exhausted when my six month old wouldn't sleep through the night, (laughs) but I get, I get families who've, who've done this for years. And, um, so it's not uncommon at all. It's, you can help these kids. Um, the methods honestly are the same as they would be for a baby. It's just the details that are a little bit different according to, you know, is this child still in a crib? Are they in a bed? Um, you know, and again, success is in the details. So, but absolutely not too late. There is still hope for, for parents of children with two or three or or even four or five or six year olds for sure. Sure. So I can tell you also that sometimes, and it just depends details again on some of the other things going on with children, but sometimes we see food sensitivity issues, like especially with certain chemical sensitivities that are actually maybe an underlying issue for bedwetting. So that'll just kind of resolve as you take care of those things. But normally parents won't do that whole protocol for just bedwetting unless they're kind of at their wits end. But typically there's like other issues as well, like maybe some allergy or sinus things. But yeah, it's interesting because I think there's always multiple ways to, to work on something. Everything should be multifaceted, right? So definitely. Yeah. So I think you answered this one. Um, and, and I'll just kind of reiterate. So someone had asked about normal sleep, uh, times for kids and thoughts about kids that don't seem to need in quotes as much sleep as others. So one parent said my almost two year old was only sleeping for eight hours and, you know, not even a two hour nap. Although that is hitting your 10 hour threshold that you said, but another said their three year old only seems to need a seven hours of total sleep, including naps, which does not hit your 10 hour threshold. Yeah, well, really, um, when I said what I said earlier, like the minimums of sleep, I what I was trying to say is that a, a child under the age of 10 needs at least 10 hours. But but really, as they get older, those sleep needs drop. So like a kid who might only need 10 hours of sleep might be like an eight or nine year old. So these younger kids absolutely need more sleep. Um, I don't believe in kids who um, just don't seem to need as much sleep as others. Um, I do think that they would sleep more if their parents knew how to teach them to do that. Um, so for instance, for, I think you said the two-year-old, um, a two-year-old on average needs about 11 hours of nighttime sleep with a two-hour nap. So about 13 hours in a 24-hour period. And I firmly believe that you can get every child at the age of two to sleeping close to that. Now, of course, these are averages. So it might vary in either direction by maybe like an hour. So maybe 10 hours during the night might be appropriate for some two-year-olds. But eight hours is is just not going to cut it. Um, you know, so a lot of times, again, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier about how they if they get overtired and they don't go to bed early enough and then they get hyper and they have the second wind. And so uh, it is very common for parents to assume, well, my kid just doesn't need that much sleep. But really, you know, we talked about why that was happening earlier. Um, a three year old. Let's see. You said someone asked for a three seven hours of sleep. Seven hours. Um, yeah, no, a three-year-old on average needs about 12 hours of sleep in a 24 hour period. So for, for most that's about 10 and a half hours at night with like an hour and a half nap each day. 
Um, some three-year-olds, again, are phasing out the naps, and so they get closer to 12 hours just at nighttime. It doesn't really matter for a three-year-old when those hours are, but really needing about 12 hours in a 24-hour period. And I have had some families come to me. In fact, I had twins recently um, who um, were sleeping, I think she said about seven to eight hours through the night. And and mom was pretty, pretty happy with that. But I was like, well, we're just going to go for like 11 hours at night. Okay. How about that? <laughs> um, you know, and, and sometimes they just cannot believe that their child needs that much sleep or is going to be able to sleep that much. But but they can, as long as there's not an underlying medical condition. Like I said, they should be sleeping in an uninterrupted sleep, by the way, you know, for that much each night. That's interesting. And it would be fun to collaborate on some of that because I know for adults and then for some children as well, when we've got other gut issues, which is where some of those, you know, nighttime hormones are secreted, um, then it can kind of impact that as well. And it usually shows up as other places like eczema, which we'll talk about in a second. But it just it's so interesting to learn about this from another aspect again. So I, I love it. Love, love, love it. Yeah. Um, okay. So I think that is almost it. I had a I do have a couple more, I guess. So I have work with a community of moms uh, that have eczema. And so some are resolving eczema. Some are very lively. And you kind of mentioned this earlier. If there's an underlying medical condition, you really have to address address the underlying medical issue. But you kind of said something that was that was great about, you know, how do you help kids that maybe were in habitual scratchers at night get back to sleep or, or issues with sleep, you know, if it's a kid with eczema, even if the eczema is resolving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, like you said, you know, I always say they have to get that under control first before, before anything's going to improve sleep wise. You can't, you know, really change habits unless the eczema is fully controlled, whether it's by seeing someone like you and figuring out what's going on with their diet. Are there any allergies? Is it something like that? Or, you know, getting the right cream from the dermatologist or something, you know, Often it does take some sort of specialist, I would say. But once you get the the eczema under control, then really it's no different as teaching any other child to break habits and, you know, learn to put themselves to sleep so they know how to stay asleep. Love it. Okay. I realize that this seems like a lot of questions. So the last one that someone had was, you know, resetting the clock if it's daylight savings time, traveling, et cetera. You know, what's your opinion on how long it takes to kind of get back to a normal routine um, when you've got that kind of craziness happening? Yeah, well, it really depends a lot on the child because um, some kids are a little more sensitive to changes in their routine than others. But our body clocks really can only move by about 15 minutes at a time. Um, So if you're trying to like, you know, do daylight savings time, whether it's fall or spring or whatever, I only suggest if you're going to move it gradually, I suggest moving times by 15 minutes each day. Now, some parents might take the cold turkey approach as your kids get older, especially that's usually what I take is pretty much, you know, the day, the day the clock changes, I just go to everything on the new time. But when they're younger, or if they're, you know, definitely under the age of two or more sensitive to changes in their routines, I try to gradually transition them during daylight savings time changes. Um, so again, even 
even if you just started like a few days, like a four days before and you move things by 15 minutes each day, then technically you would be at the new clock time by daylight savings. Some parents will start, you know, a week earlier and even more gradually make those changes, maybe 10 minutes each day. They'll change, you know, change it. And it does get a little confusing, um, but basically the, the um, if it's like springing forward, you're going to move everything up earlier. So bedtime, nap times, everything, again, by, you know, 10 to 15 minutes each day, depending on how quickly you're moving. If it's fall back, then you do the opposite. You move everything later by 15 minutes at a time. So it can get a little bit confusing. Um, but you know, good ways to reset the body clock or are to, uh, get your kids out in the fresh air and the sunshine, like earlier in the day during those, you know, daylight saving times. Um, so get out in the sunshine like first thing and then avoid that later in the evening. Avoid all kinds of sunlight or bright lights at all. Even things like TVs, the computer, the iPad, any kind of screens, you know, we don't ideally want those in the last hour or two before bedtime anyway. Anyway, but those are things you can definitely do to really help reset the body clock and then just making sure that that everything you do is pretty consistent. I mean, you don't have to have like a super strict schedule, but you don't want things all over the place either. Not just sleep times, but that includes meals as well. I mean, having regular meal times can really set your body clock too. So well, that is awesome. I learned a lot today, Tara, and there's something wonderful about having ancillary professionals like you in our tool bag, um, because you know, we all, we all need a lot better sleep. So what finally is your gut reaction for the person listening to this and feels like you're speaking right to him or her, um, child, you know, do you have any like parting words about, um, you know, if you've got a parent that feels just like you did, <laughs> what's your advice to them? Yeah. And, and that's the great thing about, me experiencing this problem um, of, you know, my baby not sleeping well and me not sleeping either is that, you know, although I never thought I would actually be thankful for that experience, um, I am able to be because it's kind of what led me to do this. And now I get to help so many other families. Um, you know, anyone out there that feels like I am speaking to you, I probably am <laughs> because, you know, there's a lot of people I'm speaking to. These problems are very common and there is help. I do feel confident that I can help you. Um, so feel free to reach out if you'd like that. Yeah, I love it when um, I, I, I agree. I, I remember going through my own struggles and sort of embracing it because I knew it would make me a better provider for people. And it really can help you empathize and, and understand where people are going. It's just there's nothing like living it that really helps you know and know it and help others through it. So where exactly. can people find and connect with you? I know you said your Facebook page, um, but where mm -hmm. else can people find you and connect with you? Okay, so I have my website. Um, it's so long because my business is long, of course, but it's Tulsa Pediatric Sleep consulting.com. Um, and on there, you know, I have a blog, by the way, on, on many of the topics that um, we spoke about today. I have a blog where, you know, you can go on and read about some of those a little bit more. Um, I've got testimonials. I have, you know, a page that discusses my, my coaching services and kind of how the process works. I think I just explained explain that a little bit earlier, but, um, yeah, and they can go on and contact me there. You can also, um, arrange to 
set up a free 15-minute initial phone consultation. So if anyone is still questioning, like, is this right for me? Can she help me? I don't know. You know, I always do the free 15-minute initial consultation to kind of talk a little bit more about myself and how my services work and hear a little bit about your situation to make sure I feel I can help you too. So... And people can come and stock Sunday night Q&As as well on your Facebook page by the same name. And we'll link all that up in the show notes. Great. Yeah. Perfect. Well, thanks so much for your time today, Tara. I learned a lot and I'm sure everyone else had some aha moments as well. Well, good. Well, thanks, Krista. I've enjoyed being part of your show. Thanks.